Hello, everyone. This is the Million Vegan Grandmothers podcast, and I have Deborah Elliott from California, I believe. Is it LA? Yes, LA. And Dr. Silas Rao, my colleague, was in you know LA, and he ran into Deborah. They had a, he said an amazing chat and talked about her work teaching with movies and. We all love movies. I mean, there's so many movies that have moved so many people, documentaries, uh, well-done films. And, you know, when vegans are asked and polled, uh, you know, what was the number one thing, the number one reason why they went vegan? The number one reason at this point is they've seen a documentary or a movie. So movies can be incredibly impactful. And I am honored to have Deborah here. And she's going to tell us about how she got started with um, teaching with movies and what that entails. And yeah, take it away, Deborah. I'm really glad that you're a fellow vegan grandmother and that we're here. You know, a lot of people, as Judy said, it might not be politically correct, but a lot of people think, you know, the old people, they just go out and they start to golf when they retire. And But not us vegan grandmothers. No, we got a big mission. We are not going anywhere. We're going to actually step up deeper. So thank you, Deborah. Thank you for being here. Right, no, um, my great pleasure. This is the third act. I think there's a, an activist group of um, well-seasoned people who, um, <laughs> who are, they call it the third act, mentoring, helping, still innovating because you're supposed to be, as your brain begins to break down when you get older, in theory, I think it's the wall between the hemispheres. There's some diminishment of some types of activity. However, the neuroscientists say that the right brain and the left brain are better able to communicate as we ripen, which I think is very optimistic. <laughs> um, okay, so actually Teach With Movies is um, almost like a public utility in that it's free. We have 450, over 450 learning guides to documentary and it was at first primarily feature films. Um, it started when our son was in fourth grade and studying the civil rights movement. And my husband had a thought, he thought, hmm, what could I, what could I um, show him? Is, are there any films I could show him that would you know, give him some good context and maybe enrich his sense of what went on in this country? Can I find something about Gandhi? Went and got the film Gandhi. Um, Alex, as, as kids are wont to, um, watched it several times and one day from the back seat of the car, this little voice pipes up, mom, what was a guy from India doing in South Africa? So we started a conversation. I think we watched the film one more time as a family and it, it led to more and more questions and discussions. Then we showed him uh, Dr. Strangelove to give him a different sense, you know, a different sort of um, perspective, a comic ironic one on, on the Cold War. And then finally, um, my favorite film of all time, which is Strictly Ballroom, Baz Luhrmann. It's about ballroom dancing and competition, authenticity, and it's a wonderful, has a serious message, but it's one of the greatest, I think, comedies of all time. So Alex has been playing baseball because he's an all-American kid and that's what boys do. I'm a, a dance major. I still take classes today. I'm almost 74 and I still take lyrical jazz classes. But anyhow, after Alex watches that movie three times over a series of weeks, he comes up to me and says, mom, I think I could do flamenco. What? 
two days later, I had him in a flamenco class. And it, it's very interesting how sometimes seeing a performance can tap something in, in the viewer where they know they have something of that in them. He knew it still, to, it blows my mind. He was a fabulous little flamenco dancer. Um, he, he kept it up and I told him he had to fix his arms. They weren't very good. So he kept it, he took ballet and until middle school, you know, even with my husband's and my very um, enthusiastic backing, he stopped because of social pressure. But by this time, we figured out that when, when parents or elders watch films with a child, with a student about something that interests them, it can do a lot of good things. It can awaken an interest. It can um, help them in a subject they're struggling with in school that's kind of like doesn't appeal to them at all, or sports, arts, whatever. So we started this website for parents and then pretty quickly found out that more, more teachers were using it than students, I'm sorry, than parents. So we went back to school and got our teaching um, credentials and I taught at Palisade Senior High School for a while. And, um, the, the, the sort of viewership just grew and grew and grew. And now everything on the site is free. It was not, it's all curricular material. It's not a streaming, you know, it's not a link to anything streaming. The teachers still have to do that, but it's pretty extensive curricular material. One of our subject matter, we have a lot of indexes. One of them was caring for animals because we thought that would be a very um, diplomatic way to talk about uh, humans and animals. <laughs> Right, and about, and then another one on environment. And when we found out uh, that Genesis Butler, who's very, really well known in the animal advocacy movement, was a great grandniece of Cesar Chavez, we thought, OMG, we have to make a film about this. So we made a short educational doc. Genesis goes up to um, the Cesar Chavez Monument. What's the name of it? I can't remember the name of the little village now, but a place that, that he settled. And she interviews people who worked with him. And we have clips of everything that Cesar did because we thought it was going to be a stealth vegan movie. But it turns out that he backed every progressive social movement that you could think of. He didn't stop with the farm workers. He went from farm workers to respect for women in the workplace, to gay rights. And in the 90s, he became a vegan for the animals and the environment. Amazing, amazing man. So uh, we made that short documentary and um, very happy, very happy that it's done. And that, because I think he needs to be reassessed. He had a holistic, expansive sense of morality, justice, compassion, and we'd like people to know it. And that's, and right now I'm thinking about, I'm trying to get a feature film made that I, that I title from a, from a terrific novel and I title it The Anti-Moby Dick Story to show animals with agency and a desire to find peace with humans. Because if we don't reconcile ourselves to the equality of every, every creature on earth, in a sense, the right to live and, and live decent lives, um, I think we are certainly doomed faster than we otherwise might be. <laughs> wow, amazing, Deborah. You have been trailblazing in this area of, of, of teaching, teaching authentic curriculum to children. And, and children love movies and documentaries and films. They love to learn that way. And I know a lot of the 
teenagers and the um, early university students of my my daughter's generation, mm -hmm. they some of them went vegan just by having a professor in university or a teacher in high school that played them a documentary um, with the animals. What's really going on with the animals in in the mass slaughterhouses and other places? So, thank you for your work. Thank you for your work. And and well, it's exciting. Yeah, yeah. So, do you have grandchildren at this point? Yes, a uh, an almost eleven year old and an eight year old in Miami. Wow, great! And two girls. Great after having three boys, it's wonderful to have two girls. <laughs> Sweet. And what documentaries have really moved them at this point? You know, their their parents are very. Um, they've guarded their psyches very carefully. They are sort of letting the warts of the world sink in very slowly, you know, not showing anything that's, um, they mostly watch feature films. And, and it's really, it's interesting to me because I think the documentaries are so critically important. They can be made for less money. Um, but when, when you've got a message or something that you wanna shine a light on and you've got a batch of documentaries, that's great. But my feeling having made one documentary and now trying to get someone to make the feature film based on this astounding novel is that once you get a scripted film where you can create the hero's journey and the arc, you know, the, 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 um, the plot arc through the whole film, that that really amplifies the impact of a documentary because in, in a feature film, whether it's a fantasy, um, a, a Disney-like thing, or whether it's uh, something that is quite plausible, which is, a sperm whale seeking peace with humans and having kind of a mirroring uh, series of questions about why do they act this way and what happened to them when they went back to land and we stayed in the sea and why are they sometimes helpful and sometimes very often murderous. When you have that kind of, you can really show that the animals have agency, that they have inner lives and, and we know this is this novel, Sounding, was written in 1981, but we now know so much more about whales, about about their minds, their brains, their social networks. Um, I think that when you can display this in a scripted film, that you really uh, exponentially increase the impact of of this message of this idea. Um, so, your curriculum does it have age-appropriate? Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. So age-appropriate and um, always links to reading. Uh, for teachers, assign classroom um, assignments, discussion questions, essay prompts, so that they can really link it to, um, to what they're teaching at the time. And we know that teachers don't have a lot of time, nor do we think they should be showing movies constantly. But when I was teaching, I did let kids uh, write up movies that they would watch at home. I had a list for them that tied into the subject matter. And, and so teachers can, you know, just pull any part of a learning guide that works for them or parents, you know, or parents, kids really struggling with science. Well, let's show you this about how viruses work and we'll, and we'll, and, or history. Let's look at this film. How did, how did the film, you know, enlist your sympathy or outrage you? Uh, what, where did they kind of like, play with the facts a little bit for dramatic effect, what really happened historically. So 
because movies are multi-sensory um, and you're kind of the viewer is I think kind of like the fourth person in the room fourth uh, fourth wall and they're um, you're a, I say you're a protected participant in a film because you know you're really safe but you can it sort of works through your emotions to grab you and get you thinking um, you can stick a lot to a film and and I uh, there's a marvelous movie that doesn't have to do with animals particularly called um, Behind the Sun it's Portuguese and it's based on a novel about blood feuds and honor cultures in uh, in Albania. The book was called Broken April, written by a, um, about, he's actually an animal rights author, uh, author who was talking about the futility of blood feuds and honor cultures and uh, old patriarchs in the family fighting over land, sending out their sons to, and grandsons to kill each other. But that movie was so chock full of visual symbols that for kids who are not particularly text oriented, as an English teacher, I was able to get them to recognize symbols and motifs by doing it first visually because it was so magnificently done in the film and then helping them to translate it into text. Text. So in a way, it's kind of a, a, a movie is a really wonderful learning tool. Absolutely. Well, thank you. T can you tell us a little bit more about the anti-movie dick? movie that the film that you want to sure 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 um hank searles wrote it uh, quick background i interviewed joanne MacArthur, who uh, heads a, a multimedia group now called we animals and liz mars made a film about her called the ghosts in our machine about when joanne was taking her pictures of animals in extremists and taking them trying to get them published in magazines and papers and the editors and everybody would go, no, this is just too much. It's too hard. Nobody wants to look at it. So the film follows her trying to get, you know, bring all this into public consciousness. And I interviewed her for the learning guide I was writing for Liz. And we talked about the books that had reached us and made us, you know, given us epiphanies about animals. And we both said, Watership Down. Yes, just incredible. You felt like somehow this was true. These animals really could have these kinds of, of thoughts that, you know, intersect with ours and yet they're their, their own because of their species. And then she said, sounding. And I said, sounding, what's that? And she said, oh, you haven't read sounding? It's about a sperm whale um, searching for peace with humans and about a drowning uh, Soviet sub off, off the U.S. coast. And and um, the sonar officer is listening to the whales, but he's a failed musician. So the, the sperm whale is coming closer and hearing the singing submarine that's in trouble. And there's a political apparatchik on the sub, the very, very fanatical um, communist morale officer. And he wants the sub to just sink and them all to die so that the Americans can't bring up the ship and learn of its secrets and yada, yada. And the, the, um, the whale, has given up, has abdicated, he's retired um, and gone to the North Pole and, and left the leadership of his pod to a, a younger, more vigorous male so that they can, you know, so that the, the calves will be healthy. But he, he comes back and he's trying to tell them about better feeding grounds and help get them to a, a better place. And, and in the meantime, the whale who has inhabited, uh, sorry, inherited the, um, the leadership position 
is actually starting to attack boats and go crazy as a result of PTSD, which we know animals have because this younger whale saw his family murdered by whalers. So this is like a secondary thread in the whole thing. But, but the papa, the patriarch wants to, you know, keeps referring back to the time that some people tried to save his beached calf and they, they worked so hard to try to save, save the baby and it didn't work, but he remembers this. And there's a cetacean prophecy that says, one day whales and humans will swim together in peace and communicate. Um, this is, you know, Cold War 1981 when things were still pretty, um, most, most countries hadn't signed on to the, um, the, the truce with whales. And so you've got that, there's this sort of undercurrent saying, okay, get it, you guys, Moby Dick was probably traumatized. Whales do not go around attacking ships and boats for no reason. They just don't do it. They're, they're not, they don't set up wars like we do. Um, they, they don't do that. So there's, there's a reason and it, it's trauma. So it brings to the audience or the readers and hopefully the audience that, again, something that we all share, human and non-human animals, that we can be traumatized and we can also have desires for peace and harmony and communication. And, and it, it ends with some rescues, uh, the, the novel does on a very positive note. And I had one studio, uh, one production company, they fell in love with the novel, they gave it to their protege at Disney and he said, I love this novel, but I can't figure out how to voice the whale. So that's a, a filmmaker, you know, it, voicing a character in a film is not going to just involve the script and the, and the words, it's going to involve sounds, it's going to involve visuals. So I'm just keep, keep shopping this around now to see if I can find someone, because um, I have a treatment and I have a log line, but I could never be a screenwriter. I don't know how people write in that format. To me, it's the hardest form of writing you can, you can do. So I'm hoping to find someone who wants to take it on, um, to let us all have some sense of hope about our relationship with the natural world and the other animals. I guess that was a little long-winded, <laughs> but I get very excited about this book. I'm very excited and I just love synchronicities. And today, one of the grandmothers was talking about there being, um, I can't remember the article she was, because right now we're, we've been writing a lot of letters it seems to we've this is the year that we've kind of galvanized the million vegan grandmothers and we have been writing a lot of letters and she talked about that this is happening that whales are coming up beside boats and and ptsd and that's that's what's happening so have you heard about that that um, i have and i heard a i know one Marine, um, I'm sorry, one cetacean neuroscientist, Lori Marino, who's an animal advocate, but th this was another um, cetacean neuroscientist who said, I actually think they were being playful because they were only drawn to the water going over the rudder. And if they had been, she said, there's never been and there never has been uh, any documented killing of a human by a killer whale, never. Um, she said, there are some things they can do to test what's going on, but she said that I don't, I think that is less likely to be trauma induced and, and more like something they're just exploring. So I'm not really, not really sure. I do know, I wonder if any of your grandmothers, and by the way, grandma whales transmit 
knowledge and culture to grandchild whales. That has been documented by Lori Marino. Isn't that interesting? That's um, if anyone's been lucky enough to go, which we did um, to the gray whale nursery in Baja, California, you go out in small boats and the mama whales will come up to the boat. These are very small boats. They have no interest at all in knocking the boats and they will lift their babies up to the people in the boat to be stroked. And we were, we said to our guide, how is this happening? And he said, the mamas remember when they were juveniles and they came to the boat with their mothers and were lifted up to meet the gentle people in the boats. Yeah, really, really. And the mama, what she does, and this, this was so moving and it made me think so often about, about Hank's book, the mama whales would, were, you could just see the eye looking at you. They were lying just over here. And, and the amazing thing was they were watchful. They wanted to watch what would happen with their babies, but there was a look of trust, of trust. It just, it, it just enlarges and melts your heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that some of us are trusted. Yeah. But yes, some exactly. of us are trusted and they know they haven't lost their innate intelligence for safety. Mm -hmm. Safety and, and a desire for contact, for touch, for communication, for some kind of bond instead of this awful, destructive human exceptionalism, human entitlement. You're there for me to, you know, the religions have told, not the Eastern one, the Western religion, yeah, you're here for me and I can do whatever I want. That doesn't, in the end, this is something I so wish, I wish for all our fellow humans is the richness and the, the warmth that comes into your life when you choose not to cause harm, when you choose to connect at whatever level and when you, or choose to protect, you just, it's like barriers fall down and your heart just gets bigger. And I want that for all humans. If they just start behaving, please. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's for, for other people, other humans and all the other animals. If we could get to that point, then maybe it would be okay if the earth, if the earth flames out. I don't know if we could get to that point before it's all over. Wouldn't that be beautiful? It sure would be a good note to go out on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, Deborah. In the meantime, <laughs> every day, you know, we just keep putting one foot in front of the other and like try to innovate, try to reach people um, every day. So where do you see our role as grandmothers? I mean, I... I believe that the grandmothers need to join together. I believe that we're gonna be a force to be reckoned with. And in that space, so much good can happen. Yeah, modeling, outreach, communication, um, the kind of, and in a way, I think grandmothers, we'll leave the grandpas out of it for the time, but can, um, they have, we have a way of, looking at our grandchildren because we're not so caught all the time in the moment to moment and the scheduling. In a way, we have a, a, a really nice sort of 
you know, view scope into who they are as people and who they can become. That's slightly different from what the parents have because the parents are engaged in this crazy, you know, oh, now I've got to get them to the doctor and did they do their homework and why haven't her teeth come in? And they're like, un unless it's a grandmother who's raising a grandchild, which, you know, also happens. But I think the wisdom and also the ability to see them um, holistically for the people they are and might become uh, I think that's something that we can bring. I never knew either of my grandparents and our sons knew my mother was going to be 104 in August. They knew one grandpa for a while, but they, you know, they had their two grandmothers who were so important to them. And, um, and I, and our granddaughters love, you know, are always excited to see their grandmas. Both of us live out of town and it's just a wonderful enrichment for them, I think. I'm so grateful that you are speaking out for the grandchildren of all species. You know, right. it really moves my heart because as a grandmother, as a vegan grandmother, for starters, when we realize we become vegan, not some far out idea or any of that, that some extreme, What's extreme is a normalized culture of death. Of is violence and death. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just, yeah, taking the most innocent, the most defenseless of, of these creatures who just happen to be, well, with factory farming, they, ha all them, they happen to be basically vegetarian. So what are we doing to them? You know, causing them, bringing them into being in, in this system of horrific confinement and violence. And it's not okay. And we've, and the, you're, absolutely the fact that we've normalized it is really awful and and there are a lot of people you know writers and who say that uh, once once you learn to yank your compassion away from other animals because my husband goes out every every week just about every week to two local farmers markets with a man uh, who a Japanese man who's now a resident here he has adopt, adopted a pig who is going to be killed and he takes her out and says, and he's named her pork chop. Kimmy has named her pork chop, ironically. And he says, you can come, please come and, and pet, pet pork chop and give her some zucchinis and just promise me today you won't eat bacon or you won't eat pork chops. All the kids, this is so instructive. My husband like has, you know, vegan posters and shouts out, come pet pork chop, you know, the rescued pig. She will never be a pork chop. She will never be bacon. She will always be loved. And we even had a plant-based bacon little sign on the side of her. The kids are completely enchanted, of course. Some of them maybe are reading Charlotte's Web, but much, much younger ones. It's for them, pork chop is, is like, she's a wonder and she is a wonder. And they come and you can see the parents kind of the wheels going like, cognitive dissonance do I really want to go is my kid going to eat bacon or should I think about this and then there are some Jewish people who are very I don't eat pork chop I don't eat you know I don't eat pork that's not and then I'm thinking okay we how are we going to get a, a baby calf out here how are we going to get a chicken out here? how are we going to get them all out here and break through that wall but oh I, I read something so interesting this was a professor who had mentioned this that they did a study of vegans and people who really empathize with animals and they think there's a slightly different 
form of oxytocin in, in their brains. <laughs> and I thought, okay, maybe all that, all that does is prevent the indoctrination, you know, prevent the pulling away, the lack of empathy, which is what, ha what happens with our children is they're told, no, they're here for us to eat. No, they, they're not really, they're just like a living thing that we can use. Maybe people who have that special type of oxytocin or have an example in their family um, have a shield against that terrible indoctrination. Mm. I wonder. Beautiful. It makes sense to me, you know, the bonding, the bonding hormone. You know. Exactly. It, it's, it's like a shield. And, and I have a first cousin who's very, uh, my sister, we were sort of vegetarian. I went vegetarian after I read Singer's book in 75. And then we futzed around and we were pescatarian and we were this and that. And then my sister had just become a vegan and she was on us and she told me about the cows and that was it. So then we became vegan, but um, no, I think there's, we have to show people some of the negative, but Porkchop is a great ambassador, you know, to show the real positives. So beautiful, you know, that's making it so concrete, you know, you just go to the farmer's market, get your vegetables and, and, and talk. It's a nice animal. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't, you know, you can go to a sanctuary, but some sanctuaries are far away from where people live. Um, mm -hmm. so if we could just trot, trot some consenting and, and pork chop is happy. She, she gets, uh, exercise walked, you know, every day she sleeps on the bed with Kimmy and his lady. Um, the, the, the <laughs> I don't know the woman's name, but she paints her fingernails cause the girls love that the little girls come up and see that pork chop has pink and purple fingernails. And when she's meeting people, Kimmy will say, I've got to take her away for a little break now. And I have to take her away for a potty. And it's, it's, you get the feeling that pork chop is pretty happy to sit there and get scratched on her back and eat zucchini and carrots and stuff. It's not like it is not really exploiting her at all. It's just kind of a happy thing for everybody. It's wonderful. So maybe we should hit every farmer's market in the country with a rescued animal. Absolutely. Wow, Deborah, give me three of the top films that everyone needs to watch, you know, to get that oxytocin, you know, going in their system. Well, someday they should watch Sounding mm -hmm. um, when it gets made. Mm -hmm. There's so many, I know. I know, and, and the documentaries, um, well, I love Cowspiracy because what I, I guess that's one of my favorite scenes of, of any film that, you know, relating to animals, when you, when you realize when he says, I can't, I'm blocking his name right now, but I just couldn't, you know, hang around. I couldn't do it or I couldn't hang around for one more chicken slaughter. And the next thing, and you see him driving his car away and then you look down and he's rescued the chicken. And the chicken is sitting in the seat next to him. I that that kind of took my breath away. Um, another one, another one. Well, everyone loved Babe, um, and it's it's interesting the way that it it changed uh, James Cromwell's life, and he became an he was I think an animal advocate before he made it, but that really he's such an activist, you know, gone to jail, and he's really out there. I'm struggling to think of a third one. 
but I know they're out there. Probably one of the films about horses and people because so many people are affected by those. I'm sorry, I can't think of anything at this moment, but I, I, that moment of cowspiracy really stands out for me. Oh, and there's one, it's not really, might be giving it away, but maybe people will read sounding. Um, there's a scene in the film that's going to be that the sperm, the sperm has been talking to bun a bunch of cetaceans here and there as he swims through the ocean towards his family. And he hears the story of a um, pilot whale, which is, this pilot whale is like a large dolphin. But pilot whale is, has been trained, has been taken, captured, used by the military, trained uh, for military maneuvers. And it's not this, he, this one actually escapes and comes back. And he's been trained to help, um, help bring people up out of um, the depths so that their lungs don't burst, you know, if they're coming up to the surface or, but what happens is he suddenly arrives at a critical point, but he's really disgusted with people, with the way they've used the cetaceans, with their warlike, yada, yada. And then at one point towards the end of the novel, um, the human protagonist, because Rostov is the human protagonist, the sonar officer, and the sperm is the whale protagonist. Rostov has tried to get out of the sub uh, and get to the surface. He knows he's going to die. He's going to get the bends, but he wants to go and tell somebody so that they will rescue the crew. So he's being shot out of the sub, the sub, and he knows he's going up. He's trying to do whatever he can to slow down the, the rapture of the deep and the bends, and he knows he's about to die. And then all of a sudden, there's a pilot whale on who's sort of on top of him and is slowing his rise to the surface so he won't die. Disillusioned though the whale, though the pilot whale was, bitter though he was, he sees a human coming up who's going to die in agony and he stops it. And I think I, I see that that stands out for me as something that is very um, instructional for us about the other animals. So I'm sorry, I, I can't think of anything else at the moment. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, with Climate Healers, we've had some recent documentaries on our convergences that we've really enjoyed. And one of the ones I really liked is Melt. Um, Melt from New Zealand, uh, Maori right. and Chris, who was able to, you know, document that they have no more accessible clean water because of the dairy industry. And the, the thought you know, for myself growing up in lakes in Northern Ontario and being such a water person, every time I see a lake, I'm like a golden retriever and I jump in it, knowing that they can't swim in the lakes anymore. They can't swim in the rivers. They can't, they can't even make plant-based milk because their aquifers are so poisoned. So it's, it's, it's really remarkable, but it's also would be really remarkable to see what happened if the dairy industry just completely stopped in New well, Zealand. Farmers started, you know, doing microgreens and mushrooms and, and how quickly that would turn around because Mother Earth, she knows what to do. Right. And the uh, technology is moving, moving so quickly. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, yeah, the technology mm -hmm. is advancing so quickly with read veg economists and veg news and they're doing this with fermentation and now and my sister just gave me some chickpea tofu for people that can't eat soy and 
it's moving really, really, really quickly. And, but I have a I have a question for you, if I could, if we have time. Absolutely. Ezra Klein, who is a political commentator and essayist, have you ever heard of him? Mm -hmm. he, I think he has a column for the New York Times, and he has he can go into this granular detail about political things and in the U.S. and elsewhere and uh, innovations and currents in society. And he came to the conclusion and he said, it's so weird now when I look at people who I really like and they're eating animals and I realize it's an evil thing. Uh, he's like, he's, he's become vegan. And he wrote that he's, he's trying, um, he's not trying to get everybody to go vegan now. He's trying to get people to care about the suffering of animals. Again, I think once you can show the inner lives of animals and the reactions and the fact that they would have agency if we let them alone to live the way they want to, um, should we do that? Should we be trying? But, but on the other side, when you're asking people to be vegan or to try vegan-ish, there's at least six really major reasons to do it. One of them is animal suffering, you know, pandemics, zoonotic disease, uh, personal health hungry people. And the one that I always bring up that really seems to surprise a lot of people is slaughterhouse workers. Mm -hmm. If you don't care about animals, but you care about your fellow humans and the marginalized ones and the, you know, the ones that have come over the border and are hiding and they've got a 14 year old kid working in a slaughterhouse, do you really want to keep nudging forward a, a system that is warping their hearts and souls and minds? because they kill all day long? Do you really want to do that to a fellow human? Wouldn't it be great to get them a job in making plant-based something so they could be in a lab and work with vegetable ingredients and fermentation and, and provide this food rather than the way that we hurt their souls? And no one ever seems to think about that, but they just don't want to think about how their bacon gets there and what it was and what happened. So, I mean, there's so many reasons to be vegan. I'm not sure if, should I concentrate on, you know, getting people to care about animals because, you know, they have, they don't want to live these lives. They have, you know, they want to live decent lives like all of us. Or should I always bringing, be bringing forth all the different reasons to be vegan, Envir environment, everything. So I don't know what to do. I mean, maybe just try to do everything, but it's uh, something I thought about because the fact that Ezra Klein and a philosopher like you all know Harari, the Israeli philosopher who wrote um, Sapiens, the fact that he said, I think perhaps the greatest crime in history is the industrial farming of animals. Animals are history's greatest victims. The fact that these people who are so concentrated on you know, human society would come up with these conclusions is very meaningful, I think, but I, I'm not, just in terms of strategy, I wonder what I should be doing. That's all. Well, I know for me at this point of the game, you know, I, there's an intuition. If we allow ourselves quiet time every day, you know, meditation mm -hmm. and time in nature and spending lots of the time with, with the living world, we'll know what to do, you know, and it's, it, there's so many entrances. A lot of people come mm -hmm human health and I sometimes feel a lot of the communities 
only focus on that. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable about that. Yes, yes. But that's, but that's where they feel they can hold on to people. The problem being, you know, Dr. Will Tuttle says, if you're only coming in it for human health, then it, once you start feeling better, you could go back. Mm -hmm. So it's when you have them, you know, you can start to share the other stuff. I'm, I'm living in Alberta, Texas or Canada. So it's a little challenging. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's, it's still, you know, there's a lot of human health issues and that's, that's how I really got into it. I, I never did like eating flesh food at all, but I, I got really sick with Crohn's. I was already eating organic. I was eating very little. I wasn't doing any dairy eggs. I was, they both made me really sick and a very little bit of fish. But it was still enough to, that I wasn't able to heal. And as soon as I went completely plant-based, mostly raw, uh, organic, veganic is really the way to go now. We're going to see a lot more of that. So then I, I, I spoke to people about health. But once they were in, I was able to get them to, you know, watch the odd documentary that uh, some of them are beautifully done, like what the health, where they're, where they're talking about our health, but they're also talking about the health of the animals and the health of the planet. And so I think once people know, they can't not know, but this is the piece. And I don't know if I can answer your question. I think it's going to be an intuition thing, Deborah. I'm sure you have amazing intuition. I can tell. So you're going to know what to say and do. You're going to know how to approach it in different environments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what I do know for certain is that people are in deep grief. Right now, my partner and I are <clears throat> really playing around with a book right now that we're, that we're writing together. And it's, it's about processing grief, you know, a little, little higher end than the Kubler-Ross, you know, denial, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, um, denial, anger, you know, we need to move into different levels of processing our grief and trauma. And so the first one is the shock, the, the felt sense shock. We need to allow ourselves to feel the shock. The problem is so many people have such a lot of accumulated grief from their past, from their childhood, maybe past lifetimes, if you believe in that, as I do. And now we're living in a world where, as my daughter said, you know, she's choosing not to be vegan at this point, but she said, mom, you could stop talking to me because do you think we don't all know? I mean, it's all over social media, what's going on. So if we're not eating vegan, it's because we choose not to. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, I get that then, you know, you're choosing not to because it's all over, but why are people choosing not to? That's why I'm really stupid. I want to know why people are choosing not to. And what I'm really mm -hmm. feeling on a deep intuitive level, it's because they have too much accumulated grief. They can't handle anymore. They can't handle anymore. And so I think we need to help people start processing their grief in a really healthy and very quick and efficient manner. Ooh, Help them brilliant through that. And that's where my work I'm hoping will be in the next couple years is that, you know, Paul, my beautiful beloved partner and I, um, and along with other people that are, that are writing pieces within this book, maybe you would love to give us an essay in this book, uh, on you know processing grief and I can give you the five stages that you probably have been through through many times over mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
um, which is the felt sense shock and then empathy, deep empathy for ourselves and each other. You know, like, how did we get here? Lots of empathy. As Dr. Will Tuttle says in the World Peace Diet, we were just following orders. Okay. Most of us were just following orders. We need it. We were told that this is what we need to be healthy. So we have so much empathy. And then we move into creative action. We have to move into action. We have to move the emotion. We have to take motion with the emotion. We have to move it so it doesn't get stuck in our soma. I do, I've been doing, I've been a body worker for 25 years. I know how much grief people store in their soma. Then we go into uh, love and care. So we find different pathways to love and care so that we can stay the course. And then the last stage is the pathways to heal. So that's a lot of community work, a lot of connecting, because that is the way it's going to be. You know, if we're going to reconnect our memory of what we're here for, we have to connect we have to get a healthy gut. So the problem being is most of us have a really dysbiotic gut, which means that we're going to have a lot of brain inflammation. Mm -hmm. And the system has been set up accordingly to, to create that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, right when genetically modified food, so they could genetically modify it so they could spray it with stuff like Roundup, the most toxic ingredient, glyphosate. Glyphosate creates leaky gut in 12 to 15 minutes, which they discovered in wow. Dr. Bush's lab. So what's happening is we live in a system that's very corrupt, that on some level, whether we believe this or not, knows that if people that are unhealthy are easy to control, they're very easy to control. And when you're on a survival level, because you're not feeling good most of the time, you're trying to just pay the bills, the economy gets crashed again, it's a big Ponzi scheme. Mm -hmm. You don't have the energy. And you just have this accumulated grief, stress, trauma, anxiety. And then that's also what the eating flesh food and, and the secretions and, you know, of animals does to us is, is we're eating their accumulated grief and their and terror and terror and yeah. their terror. So we run out of space within this, within this small structure. So for me, where I'm going to put my focus is helping people process their grief and trauma in in a grief mapping way that's what the book will be called grief mapping because we're going Ooh, to wonderful wonderful map it and we're going to move it right on through and connect with people so that we can we can help people in the most authentic way we can say we can let once you make space you're going to want to look at this once you make a little bit of space within you you're going to want to look at this so i'm so excited <laughs> That's wonderful. I, I, I know, I know, let's see, I think something that people who are not quite willing to hear this or not, or, you know, like my mother saying, yes, it's just going to take time. It's going to take a lot of time. And in the meantime, you know, just going to go eating vegan at my house and the way she eats at her house. But I'm just wondering, someone said, this might be not really correct, but someone said that Democrats have in the U.S., I don't want to talk about our political system otherwise, but that Republicans have compassion for those they know in their personally in their own circle. Democrats have compassion and worry about big groups of people they don't know. And then the analogy this guy made was that in the same way that the hunter cares about his dog but doesn't care about the deer or doesn't care about all the animals whose habitats are being taken away from them, I think something that vegans feel that 
I think we need help with our grief just for being vegan because, you know, you see, a, a, I, I didn't go to a, a save vigil for the longest time because I was afraid I couldn't handle seeing them go in and knowing I couldn't do anything. And then I realized something that Dosta, not Dosta, that Tolstoy, the great Tolstoy said, when the suffering that Anita references, when the suffering of another, I think it was creature, causes you to want to turn and run away, do not run away. Instead, go closer, as close as you can to the one who suffers and try to help them. And that's the whole you know, inspiration for the SAVE movement that she created was, we can't stop this, but let's give them a word of comfort. Let's give them some water. Um, I think that vegans embody a lot of grief. We think about all of what's going on in our backyards and in the poor part of town and the suffering every day that's just, you know, I think that humans only really feel in, 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 in war, you know, places where wars are being, um, you know, persecuted, prosecuted, that we just have the, I think we need to find a way to deal with our grief. And I think everyone else is saying, I don't feel that grief. And then it gets very twisted. Yes, thank you. And I'm hoping that this writing and will become a, a workshop for wonderful that needs to process grief in a healthy manner. And in regards to what you said, Deborah, you know, my partner is very much like that. He can't, he can't look at it. He can't get that close. And that is why we all have our part to play as vegans. And, and it doesn't mean that we all need to be on the front lines. I, one of my first careers was a social worker and I, I didn't last on the front lines very long. I'm too sensitive. I, and I'm not saying the ones that are on the front lines aren't sensitive. They're super sensitive people. But for me, I, I would lose, I would lose my sense of joy too quickly. It was too much for me. And there's all kinds of factors involved, but I, you know, I had a childhood where I had to look at a lot of stuff mm -hmm. and, you know, I choose not to do that now that I don't have to look at it anymore. And, mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean that I don't know it's, it's going on, but I could be more help in other areas. In so, other words, exactly, exactly. Because you have to preserve yeah, you have to conserve your positive energy and figure out ways to add to it, not have it all sucked out of you in some cataclysmic. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And we don't look at the films anymore, um, but I felt, okay, you know, and my husband said, that's one of the reasons I'm vegan, so I don't have to look at the films anymore. But I felt <laughs> um, that I could, I could finally, I could go to a save event because those animals needed me. The animals in the films are beyond my, you know, I, I know what's going on and um, I don't have to bear witness in terms of watching the film, but that's how I got motivated and they didn't bring pigs, pigs that night, but to finally try to go to a, a save event where, you, where the animal needed us more than we needed to be protected. But I, but I will not watch the films anymore. I've never watched Earthlings. I had two or three copies of Earthlings and I never watched it because I saw a trailer and it's like, nope. Yeah, because if you're, if you're broken down, then you, know, you can't help yourself, you can't help others if it, if it sends you into some kind of awful. And the films aren't for us. And I think that's the thing mm -hmm. that a lot of vegans have to um, allow themselves 
access to that we are we are we're already vegan for that reason you yes, know and so we don't we don't have to watch things that traumatize us we're doing enough work and I think as wise women you know seasoned elders I think it's okay to say no to whatever we need to say no to that is our right that is everyone's right but it's absolutely our right at this point and it's a challenge for women it's a challenge for women probably for a lot of men too, but I know it seems to be a really big challenge for women to say no and to mm -hmm. say I've had enough. And because sometimes it just didn't seem loving somewhere along the way, you know, it didn't seem nurturing, but it's very nurturing because it's that life, you know, it's that, it's that oxygen mass scenario, you know? And so with this place that we find ourselves in together, us vegan grandmothers, we can go forth with so much strength. And it's not going to be in sorrow. You know, it's going to be in feeding the people and gathering around and playing. I, I had a six hour date with my granddaughter today that I wasn't, I didn't think I was going to have. And oh my okay. goodness, we were eating wild rose petals and making, making all kinds of nummy stuff and playing outside and and I just said, it's your day, Hadley. And so her, she's seen her mother pull up and she says, Oma, we didn't get any yoga done yet. And I said, <laughs> quickly do a tree. You know, we were coming back from a walk in the bush. I said, let's, let's do a tree and a couple other poses. And then you got your yoga. And she wanted to make sure she got the whole. It and was done. It was done. Is she your, do you have other, do you have other grandchildren? Is she your? So she's my youngest and she's, she's four. Young. And she's then four. a six-year-old and mm -hmm. uh, and my oldest grandchild's nine. So, uh -huh. okay, you know. great. So it's been a, it's been a gift to be a grandparent. It's, oh, it's, it's one, isn't it wonderful? It's we're melting. so lucky. We're, it's, we're so fortunate. So blessed. Well, thank you, Deborah, so much. And thank you, thank you for uh, teach teaching with, with movies and setting up that curriculum for so many people to have access free to this amazing resource. And thank you again for being uh, one of the million vegan grandmothers who are coming together. And I just imagine where we're going to be in a year from now. We're going to be joining and meeting and marching. Maybe one day we're going to be marching for the for the cows all together across the world. And we're gonna we're going to be bringing our grandchildren and all the the species of of of. Um, of us all, you know, in our hearts, when we can say, you know, no mother and no grandmother should have to lose a child for somebody else's, um, somebody else's um, desires and, yeah. Leading, yes, leading desires. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been such a delight. Oh, it's been such a, such a beauty to have you and uh, blessings to you.